Hello and welcome to Living a Culture of Life podcast by Human Life International. I'm your host, Colleen, and I'm joined today by Monica Leal Klein. Welcome. Hi. Hi, Colleen. Thanks for being on the show today. Oh, I'm excited. And then you used to train children in sex ed. You were trained by Planned Parenthood to go to schools to teach sex ed, correct? That is correct. Could you just share your story with our listeners? We'll start there and then we can go into like what comprehensive sex ed actually teaches children and the problems with it. Sure. You know, um, this all started with uh, me graduating college and wanting to change the world and doing something that was important. Um, and helping people who were marginalized. And this was actually in the 1990s. And uh, HIV, was, the epidemic, you know, was, was something that was at the forefront of everyone's mind. And I wanted to help marginalized populations. And so I ended up volunteering and then was quickly hired on to a gay organization that had an HIV prevention program in a low socioeconomic area of our uh, city, uh, Austin, Texas. And, uh, and, and I wanted to do my part to help stop the prevention, you know, to help stop the spread of HIV. And uh, all the data was showing us from the CDC that it was in impoverished populations, uh, people of color, uh, uh, homosexual men. And so I, I wanted to help save the world, basically. And, um, and so I, like I said, I just started volunteering and then was quickly hired to be a sex educator. Uh, at the time, it was called an HIV prevention specialist. And we worked in collaboration with the STD clinic from the city, you know, uh, as well as any family planning organizations. And so that would be Planned Parenthood and other federally qualified health centers. Um, but really, it was Planned Parenthood who did most of the educating. And so uh, we worked in collaboration with the STD clinic, other, other a- HIV organizations, as well as Planned Parenthood. And, um, and I, you know, it, it was really my training at the gay organization very much to learn about the homosexual population, their sexual practices, what was high risk, what was low risk, how to communicate that. And after a few months, they said, you know, it's time for you to learn how to share this with children. And that's when they sent me across the street from our office to a Planned Parenthood clinic. And uh, the director of sex education was the one who began to mentor me on how to share that prevention, STD, pregnancy prevention message to children. What age children were you teaching? Was it like teenagers? Was it preteens? What was the age bracket that you were um, doing classes for? Yeah. Good question. You know, uh, a lot of these programs will hide behind the government language and the government language for any of these programs is going to be uh, for women. It's going to be women of childbearing age. And so for many of us, we may think, well, obviously that's adult women. Um, But really what that means is any girl who has started her period or even is about to start her period. And so with this these kinds of programs and the approach of comprehensive sex education, their foundational belief is that children are sexual from birth. Um, And so they truly believe that children have a right to uh, sexual pleasure and sexual activity. And so although the grant language may say women of childbearing age, that could be as young as nine, technically, because a girl can start menstruating at the age of nine. Um, But with their foundational belief, with comprehensive sex education, 
they would then say, well, it'll be any child really who needs to learn about how to prevent the spread of STDs as well uh, and HIV. And so that could be very young children. Now in the nineties at that time, it, it, they didn't set a limit to how young uh, a child that they would teach, but really it was around nine years old. Um, and so, uh, the director of sex education at Planned Parenthood of Greater Austin, Texas at the time, she let me know that there was girls as young as nine coming into the clinic with STDs and, and other, other issues that they were facing because of sexual activity. My first reaction though, having been a, a young woman at the time I was college age, you know, just graduated from college, my early twenties, and I had not been a sexually active youth, you know, so my first thought was, well, if a girl is nine or even 10 or 11 or 12, <laughs> my first thought was that that's sexual abuse. That's not actually voluntary. And so I, I expressed that concern to her and wanted her to teach me how to help these girls avoid those situations. Not that it was their fault that they had been sexually violated, but again, how do you educate girls to protect themselves and, and avoid that altogether? And she immediately corrected me, patted me on the knee and said, no, dear, we're not here to teach them how to avoid sex. We're teaching them how to do it safer. Um, and so she let me know that it would make those girls feel ashamed or as though I was judging them by teaching them to avoid sexual activity. Uh, she also reiterated that this was their choice, that they were consenting and uh, that I would be judging them if I were to give them this alternative, which is to avoid sexual activity. So she immediately corrected me and um, it didn't settle well with me at first. Um, now, I'm not going to say that I had a conservative worldview or even a biblical worldview at the time because I was not a Christian at the time. Um, and so I looked around and I thought, well, the government is funding this organization. It's funding my organization. Uh, we've got nurses, we've got physicians, you know, I, I'm going to trust the expert. And so I allowed her to teach me their philosophy, their worldview. And, um, and again, I wanted to make a difference in the community and protect the marginalized. And so I, I went ahead and, and did as she told me. What was that philosophy and worldview? Well, it's, it's what I mentioned earlier. There's this, um, really it all came from, uh, a man named Alfred Kinsey mm -hmm. And back in the 40s, and he was a zoologist, but really he was a, a sexual deviant. And uh, he wanted to really justify his um, pedophilia, his homosexuality, you know, just and it, it, he, he was involved in many uh, depraved sexual activities. Mm -hmm. And in order to legitimize that and then get the rest of the world to agree with him, he began to do research. Uh, to prove that these things were normal. And he was heavily funded by the Rockefeller Foundation and many other uh, people mm -hmm. to do that. He did that at a university as well. And currently, well, actually not anymore, but the Kinsey Institute, uh, which was established in his name, was at uh, the University of Indiana. Uh, and just in the last year, some friends of mine were able to defund them and, and get them kicked out of that university. I'm not sure where the standing is now because I know they were trying to peel that. But anyway, the point is, is that Alfred Kinsey's research, which was documented in um, two books that he published in the in the 40s, 
is really what catapulted this worldview and justified this depravity, the sexual depravity, and this belief that children are sexual from birth. And the way he arrived to that decision and, and that, that piece, I want your listeners to not forget. Their worldview is that children are sexual from birth. Now, I've even had some Christian people say, well, that's true uh, because, you know, we have sexual parts and, you know, and, but this is a very different kind of view. It is the belief that children are sexual from birth, that, that they have a right to sexual pleasure, that they can have sex, uh, safe sex with um, emotionally, mentally, spiritually with adults. It's a very depraved view. So to do not fall for that lie. But uh, the way he justified that or tried to was by hiring pedophiles to um, it. And it's in his book. It's it's I believe it's table 31 where he documented um, and I'll use some different words. So it's not so um, so shocking, but it is very shocking research Uh, and it's not it's fraudulent research. But what they did was that they timed the amount of time with timers that it would take for a child to climax, to sexually climax. And the table shows that they did these experiments on infants all the way up to 13 years of age. They also showed the duration of time that they did this to the children. Some of them were at 24 hours, 25 hours, which means that those children had been sexually tortured for that amount of time nonstop by these pedophiles. And then they documented what they believed was a climax. They used that table to then justify that, see, children are sexual from birth. Um, And so really his book is documenting the sexual torture and violation of children. That's so tragic. So um, this fraudulent research then began to change the way psychology is taught, sexual development is taught. Um, our sexual, uh, you know, STD prevention programs that we have in our government. It changed our laws. Uh, it used to be that rape had the death penalty, especially if it was children, women. But now it's, you know, the, it's very lax. It's not the same as it, as it used to be. Mm-hmm. So his research truly changed our culture, the medical community, mental health, spiritual community, as well as um, our government, our funding and just how we view sexuality. And uh, so, and he was, he influenced a young man in a university. And this young man was a, a virgin uh, at, you know, back back in the forties and fifties, that wasn't uncommon for, you know, many young men to still be virgins when they went to college. Mm-hmm. And this young man was a, a virgin and he uh, picked up Alfred Kinsey's book and was, he, he resonated with the book. And so much so he decided to be Alfred Kinsey's pamphleteer. Literally, that's what he said. And his name was Hugh Hefner. And that man then became the creator of Playboy. And so you see how this research and the sexual depravity was just being spread among many people and influenced many people and changed our culture. How did it? And so there was this belief and I'll go. Yeah. So it when so really any of your listeners right now, you know, if they're like, oh, this is such a big story. Is this really true? Well, yes, you can, you can look up his books, you can read his research, you can see it for yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, but you can also read it in the standards created by comprehensive sex education supporters. Mm-hmm. And you can find that on a website called Seekus, or you can just 
uh, Google uh, uh, the national uh, sexuality NSES, the National Sex Education Standards. Just Google that and you'll find it on the SECAS website. And you'll see that they are trying to teach children about sexuality from infancy, uh, as well as that believing that our sexuality is fluid and that our gender is also fluid, that there are no absolute truths. Mm -hmm. So when people talk about comprehensive sex education in our schools or, or in our medical community as well, those are the standards that they're going by. Uh, and they, they are standards that violate our children. So I was about to ask then, how did this idea that children are sexual beings affect how kids are being taught sex ed and how did they use sex ed to push casual sex on children? Right. So if you're working from a worldview that children are sexual from birth and they have a right to sexual pleasure, mm -hmm. then that means that you're going to, as adults and as a society, allow children to be sexual, mm -hmm. uh, whether it's self-gratification, whether it's touching one another, whether it's, you know, so basically sexual activity is now normalized among children. Mm -hmm. Uh, children are easily moldable. So if an authority figure teaches them that, mm -hmm. um, I do believe that many of those children are probably going to react negatively to it. Mm -hmm. uh, but eventually, because our children, you know, children submit to authority and they are vulnerable compared to adults, they'll submit to a lot of that um, education. Mm -hmm. Of course, it's going to be to their detriment. They're going to have emotional and spiritual and physical negative consequences from that. Uh, and something I want to back up with, you know, where I mentioned about Alfred Kinsey's uh, table mm -hmm. on uh, recording the climax of the sexual climax of children, um, the description of the sexual climax to the pedophile sounded normal. If you were to read it in his book, you would realize that those children were screaming in agony. Uh, so the descriptions were also very uh, really illuminated that these children were being sexually tortured. It was screaming, pulling away, shaking, like trembling. Uh, they were afraid and they were being tortured. And so to the pedophile, that seemed like pleasure because they have a very distorted view. They're, they're, they're not normal. Uh, they, you know, they have a mental disorder when they're doing, when they find pleasure in that. Um, and so their way of perceiving what the child is experiencing is very distorted. Mm -hmm. um, so that distortion, when you have that kind of a worldview, uh, even if you're not necessarily, you know, because I'm sure your listeners are going to think, well, surely, Monica, our nurse who teaches this is not a pedophile. No, she probably isn't or he probably isn't. Uh, it's possible. Um, but they have this belief that children have a right to sexual pleasure. Mm -hmm. And so when you start to frame it as a right or a human right to something, mm -hmm. then we start to think about, okay, if there's a human right and a human right can be violated, who would violate, who would be that person, that oppressor that would try to keep sexual pleasure or sexual activity from a child? And if we were to think about, okay, well, who would be that oppressive population? And usually it's the parent. Mm -hmm. It's parents who are trying to protect their children from exposure to pornography or someone talking to them about sex or their body parts or encouraging them to become sexually active or enabling them to continue, to continue in sexual activity in childhood. Um, it would be parents that are, that are trying to do that. So when 
you frame it to a child that they have a human right to sexual pleasure and sexual activity. And now you've set up the parent to be the oppressor of that right. You've now pitted, you know, you've created a wedge between children and their parents. Mm -hmm. And so that's what we're seeing today as well, is that many children um, are really speaking as though their parents have no authority. Their parents don't know, uh, you know, they're not up with the times. They're not woke. Mm -hmm. They don't understand. Um, And the way Planned Parenthood and other comprehensive sex educators teach that is very gently. Um, I was part of teaching communication skills and client-centered counseling skills to clinicians Mm -hmm. on how to talk to adults and children about sexual activity and to really be able to, um, to, to create a bond and a trust with them so that those individuals could share with the clinician what their sexual activities were to assess their risk. Mm-hmm. And much of the way you counsel uh, a child in that situation, if you believe they have a sexual right to sexual pleasure and you don't want their parents to, to become a barrier or to get angry at the child, then you would counsel them by saying something like, you know, I'm sure that you're very curious at your age about sexual activity. I'm sure that you've, you know, you probably have an interest, a romantic interest. It's very exciting. And, you know, and so you start to kind of condition, it's like very normal, like, yeah, of course, children have crushes as they're teenagers, they're starting to become attracted to, you know, to someone and and want to, you know, a a little relationship, whatever that looks like to them. Um, And then you could say, you know, and you might be curious about sex, which again, it is absent. So this is kind of like, Colleen, this is just normal things. Of course, children are are going to be curious about sex. They're going through puberty. Mm -hmm. Their bodies are changing. They have questions Mm -hmm. that they're afraid to ask even their parents at times because they're just, because you know what? Because God created us to be modest. You know, so these are just modest things. It's okay that they are curious. It's okay. Those things are okay. If your child is going through puberty and they have questions and their body is changing and they have new sensations that they've never experienced before, I want parents to know right now that it's normal because God created them that way. Mm-hmm. That That is part of human development, not from psychology or from man's point of view, but from God's point of view. Mm-hmm. Their body changing and experiencing different sensations in their body naturally involuntarily sometimes is because God created our bodies that way. So it is normal and nothing to be ashamed of. What's unhealthy is when our children are being groomed by someone else and being given a worldview that is harmful to them. Mm -hmm. But when we can talk to our children about their natural body and human development from the God's point of view, then we're helping our kids. There's nothing to be ashamed of by the way God created us. And again, that's very specific, male and female. We were created in God's image. We, there is no confusion about our gender. Uh, so so uh, I, I want your audience to know that this isn't about accepting yourself, however you want to define yourself, but that we are defined and created as God created us. But so, you know, so then these counselors will talk to the children and and say, you know, I bet you you're curious about sex and your body. And I bet your parents, you know, you're probably nervous to talk to your parents about it. And they're, of course, going to say, well, yeah, we are. And then they're going to establish themselves and say, well, I'm an expert. I'm a nurse. I will not judge you. You can ask me anything and I'm here to support you. 
And, you know, and then they might even go as far as saying, you know, your parents are just an older generation and they probably just don't understand. And that's okay. They might even go as far as saying, you know, are your parents Christian? Yeah, you know, that's a fine religion. There's nothing wrong with being a Christian. But sometimes they have beliefs that are, you know, very limiting to some people and can be very shameful. And so they kind of start to counsel that child in a way that they're not attacking the parents in an aggressive way, but they're attacking them in such a way that they're going to now have that child trust this nurse or this sex educator instead of the parent. Mm -hmm. So they're not saying your parents are bad. They're just saying they have distorted thinking because they're Christians or they're an older generation and they just don't get it. Um, and so now this child is going to say, hey, this person is nice. They're not attacking my parents, but I can ask them questions that I wouldn't ever want to ask my own parents. And they have more knowledge. And so they start to then trust this individual. And so what Planned Parenthood did back then, I don't know about today, uh, because laws have changed quite a bit. But back then, you know, they would encourage children to give them a, a false name so that if a parent did call the clinic, they wouldn't have to say that their child was there um, or that they had a file there. They might even encourage um, the child to give a different phone number for follow-up appointments so that they wouldn't receive the phone call at their home. Of course, this was back when we had landlines. So this would be happening um, outside of the school at this point. So would it be that they'd establish a connection in school and then the children would come visit the clinic? Yes. Okay. The way that they were able to get into the schools is rogue teachers. And so I was invited into many schools. Um, the school itself, the district itself would not welcome, welcome me in, but I could have a literature teacher who really believed that Planned Parenthood was healthy for kids and she knew that her kids had questions. And so she would invite me as a speaker to her class and that's how we would get in, Okay, you know, and so we would talk about sex ed and the district wouldn't even know about it. So, um, and the other way that Planned Parenthood did it was by becoming uh, Girl Scout troop leaders. And so uh, many of the sex educators were Girl Scout troop leaders. And so that was a way to not only get to the young girls, but then those, the friends of those young girls. And so they would host parties um, that would promote both Girl Scouts um, as well, not necessarily Planned Parenthood, but when the girls arrived, then they would be introduced to comprehensive sex education. And literally, um, you know, one of the, educators at Planned Parenthood that I knew was a Girl Scout troop leader. Mm -hmm. And she would have her Girl Scout troop meetings at the Planned Parenthood education building. And they would help creating condom kits. They would help. Uh, a condom kit is a little Ziploc where uh, there is a condom lubrication and information um, that was put into that little Ziploc and those were handed out. So here we had minor children in Girl Scouts creating condom kits for Planned Parenthood and distributing them. Um, so it just, it, it just continues. And so we can have after school um, clubs mm -hmm. that either it was hosted by Planned Parenthood, or maybe it was a completely different group. Um, but yet Planned Parenthood was still invited to come in. Uh, sometimes uh, you might form a group that's about healthy relationships or, 
you know, I don't know, something that just sounds completely innocent, Mm -hmm. but yet it was run by a Planned Parenthood person or other comprehensive sex educator. Like I didn't work for Planned Parenthood, but I was an HIV specialist. Mm -hmm. I could have formed any group that I wanted uh, for after school. Um, you know, and it, and it didn't, it didn't have to be necessarily about sex so that no one would know about it, but then they would be taught about sex and be supported in that, uh, you know, each time. So what sort and of, so there's things, a lot of different ways that they did it. Yeah. What sort of things did comprehensive sex ed push for children? Like I'm guessing contraception, uh, having sex casually, um, what else was being pushed through these education programs? Right. Well, first and foremost, they're going to be taught that um, sex is perfectly normal. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's perfectly normal at their age, uh, but that they need to be responsible. And then they would be encouraged and said, you know, I know a lot of people, maybe even your parents think that you're just a kid, Mm -hmm. but you know, you're capable of so much more. And so again, another way to wedge, create a wedge between children and their parents. And so they start to form this bond with the child. And so it's really similar to really a pedophile. And so the FBI put out an article about how pedophiles work and what how they groom a child for sexual activity <clears throat> sexual activity. And it's very similar to a sex educator. And I'm not saying sex, sex educators actually ever touch a child yeah. because you know, I never witnessed that. That wasn't something that I ever saw, but the education is provided to a child to become sexually active. Mm-hmm. But the first step is to um gain trust with the child. And so I kind of have already given you examples of how they speak to a child to gain that trust with them. And the child becomes very open and and shares intimate things with that educator or clinician. And then the next step that the FBI listed is to slowly begin to desensitize that child to sexual content. So it could be uh, things that they listen to, things that they watch, or it could be pictures sex educator does the same thing. They, uh, and I'll uh, share with you how I was taught to do that, but to desensitize the child to the topic of sexuality so that you can teach them all the details about sexual activity. And so then the third step that the FBI listed is that once the child is desensitized then they move towards sexual violation. Um, and so for the sex educator, it's once they're, the child is desensitized to the content, they then teach them about sexual activity and how to access the healthcare system so that they can get tested for STDs, pregnancy, and get abortions. So then um, as I met with my mentor at Planned Parenthood, one of the first things that she taught me uh, is she said, well, one, these kids are sexually active, you know, so she shared some of the case studies in their clinic of girls young as nine coming into the clinic. And she said, okay, so now that's been established. She's established in my mind. Mm -hmm that children are sexual. All right. So then the next step is, well, Monica, she said, these kids are not going to admit to you that they're sexually active. You know, they're, they're, and she said they're inhibited. So it's really interesting on one hand, she's saying that children are already sexually active and consenting. But then on the other hand, she's also saying that they're inhibited. So which one is it? Yeah. It's that they really are inhibited and that not all children are sexually active. Some may be, um, but many of those have probably been exposed to pornography or have been violated by an adult. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so she said, so, so you start off your, uh, your, you know, your workshop with children with an icebreaker. And that's the first step to desensitize, uh, to desensitize them to the topic. And so that icebreaker, which I've seen in many comprehensive sex ed 
programs even today mm -hmm. is very simple. And it was actually something that was used by Alfred Kinsey himself. And it was um, to really restructure the brain mm -hmm. to accept extreme content is really what it was. And so it was really to just show it to you over and over again. So you become desensitized. And so this icebreaker is very simple. Um, let's say I have a dry erase board or I have post-its with markers and I simply ask the children to shout out all of the names that they can think of slang names, anything goes of body parts and sexual activity. And so some of the kids are inhibited and won't say anything. And of course you always have one kid who is going to just be like, he can't wait. He, or usually it's a boy can't wait to say some of these inappropriate terms. And when they see that the authority in the room, which is the educator, the adult is encouraging them. He or she is not upset with them for saying these crass terms. All the children start to engage in the activity. So they're shouting out all these horrible terms and the educator then writes them on the whiteboard and every single term that they write, that they speak and shout out is written on the whiteboard. Um, or the child can not only shout it out, they might write it on a post-it and then they come and put it onto the board. And you have a bunch of post-its with all these really um, inappropriate terms for body, sexual body parts and sexual activity. And so I want you to imagine a room full of kids as they're shouting out these very crass terms about sexuality mm -hmm. and body parts. And what's happening at that moment is that not only are you desensitizing children to talk about sexual things, mm -hmm. content, but you're also teaching them to dehumanize themselves and one another. Mm -hmm. So we're now objectifying, we're taking the value out of our, out of, intimacy. We're taking the value out of our bodies and the topic of sexuality as God created it. Um, and so not only do they hear it, many of them are then writing it mm -hmm. on a post-it or writing it on the dry erase board themselves. Mm -hmm. So now you've got, a, you've heard it, you've written it and you're reading it, you're seeing it. And so here we are hidden every possible way to teach a child about a topic yeah. and ingraining it in them. So not only have you desensitized that child, you are now breaking down their previous worldview and recreating a new worldview. And that's very important to them, uh, not to the child, but to comprehensive sex educators, to the abortion industry. Why? Because sex education is actually the marketing tool that feeds abortion. That's what's going and to be so my next as question. These children, <laughs> right. And so as, you, as these children are desensitized to this, they're learning that they can dehumanize one another. They're learning that sex is about objectifying one another, that sex is not about intimacy or marriage or having children, but instead sex is about sexual pleasure. And all it, all it requires is consent. And then even consent is a very gray area. So these children, so, so now imagine now, now after this icebreaker, they are desensitized and literally to talk about STD and HIV transmission and pregnancy, 
means that we're going to talk about every possible sexual activity. And so that was my next lesson from my mentor at Planned Parenthood is, Monica, when you walk into a room full of children, I want you to imagine that they've done anything and everything when it comes to sex. And if they haven't, they will. And it's your job as a sex educator to teach them about every form of sex, their risk of getting an STD or pregnant, and how to re uh, reduce that risk by using condoms and lubrication. Mm -hmm. And it's not a matter of if they get an STD or become pregnant, but when they do, then they need to come in to get tested, treated, and have an abortion. And so you see that it's not a matter of maybe you'll get pregnant. Maybe, you know, it's, it's no, it's, we know that they will. Mm -hmm. And so now funnel those kids to the clinic mm -hmm. so that we can increase our business <laughs> and treat them for their STDs and abort their children. And so when you then put that child on that path, they start to engage in sexual activity. They have to go to Planned Parenthood because they're afraid that they have a disease or they're pregnant. Mm -hmm. And you put them on that cycle of behavior and more and more secrets are building because these are not things that their parents are going to approve of. Mm -hmm. So again, there's that wedge that is now getting bigger and bigger between the child and the parent. Mm -hmm. And now that child is going through things that they're not prepared to, that children do cannot handle the burden of becoming sexually active. It's too, it's too, it's a burden too great for them. Mm -hmm. Getting a disease and learning how to manage that and get treatment is also a burden a child cannot handle on their own. Becoming pregnant and having an abortion, again, a burden a child cannot handle on their own. They're afraid to talk to their parents about it. So they're relying on the authority in those clinics and those educators. Mm -hmm. And so here, and, and not only that, we're breaking down that communication between the family, mm -hmm. but they have now learned that sexual intimacy is not about love and it's not about children. And they are less likely to pursue a healthy relationship where they will get married and have children. And so really this is all about the destruction of the family. Yeah. Um, as I talked to the clinicians, as I spoke to other sex educators, and as I was promoted to eventually become the Title X training manager for Texas and New Mexico, everyone always said that parents were a barrier to service. Mm -hmm. uh, parents were a barrier to access to children. Parents were a barrier to getting children to come into a clinic mm -hmm. and to use these services. Parents are always considered a barrier. And this is why they create laws and policies to ensure that they have access to children without parent consent. And so if for a child to get Title X services, which is family planning, getting birth control, getting pap smears, mm -hmm. the government language actually states that they will provide this service free of charge to any woman of childbearing age. At the very beginning of our conversation, we talked about what that means. A girl as young as nine. So a girl as young as nine can walk into a clinic that, provide, that has Title X funding she can get a pap smear. She can get birth control pills. She can get treated for STDs. She can get all that paid for by the government and her parents will never know. That's insane. And I'm assuming and that, that's been going on for a very long time. And I'm assuming that the parents didn't know what you were teaching the children when you would go into schools as well, because it would have been like you would have been invited no. by a teacher. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, parents probably didn't even know that that sex educators were coming in and teaching their class. And if a child isn't going to say anything. No. Especially once um, you drive that wedge. They may not. 
Yeah. Right. Right. You know, so this isn't, it's posed to the child that this isn't a bad thing. It's just that your parents don't understand and we're going to teach you. And quite honestly, kids don't usually tell their parents what they're learning at school anyway. <laughs> you know, so it's, it's out of sight, out of mind kind of a thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they're using the vulnerability of our children against them is what they're real. They're using their natural curiosity. They're using their natural human development against the child. Uh, to lure them into high-risk activity that's high-risk for their spiritual lives, their emotional lives, and their physical lives. Did Planned Parenthood ever teach you to talk about abstinence at all, either in favor of it or against it? Abstinence is considered laughable to Planned Parenthood and to anyone in the STD or HIV community. Uh, And that is a direct quote. Abstinence is laughable. Uh, They do not believe that anyone will abstain. Uh, They don't believe that Christians abstain. Uh, They don't think priests abstain. Uh, They don't think they, their worldview is sex all the time, all the time. Um, And so they believe it's laughable. It's not, uh, if anyone says that they were a virgin when they got married, maybe it's possible, but more than likely it's not true. Um, So they don't believe abstinence is a real thing and it's laughable to them. Now, if you were to read even on Planned Parenthood's website about abstinence, um, they do talk about it. Their view, their belief about abstinence is, uh, and I'll use some terms that I don't know if you were going to edit them out or not, but Planned Parenthood believes that abstinence, examples of abstinence are uh, mutual masturbation, uh, massaging one another, touching one another, either under the clothes or over the clothes. Um, showering, uh, just, they list all these erotic things basically that don't have, that are not intercourse Mm -hmm. that they would consider to be abstinence. Um, and so they don't, they don't believe that that's how they would teach abstinence. Now they might say something like this abstinence, um, is the only 100% way to avoid disease and pregnancy. They'll say that statement and then the rest of the time that they're with the child, which is probably an hour, they will talk about having sex, using condoms, lubrication, Mm -hmm. et cetera, and all the sexual activities. Um, And so when comprehensive sex education says that they do talk about abstinence or they call their program abstinence plus, what they're really saying is that they shared the one sentence that says, Mm -hmm. if you truly live an abstinent lifestyle, it is the only 100% way to avoid disease in pregnancy. Mm-hmm. And then that's and it. There's a big, <laughs> that, no like, one does that. Yeah, that's and it. here's how to do it safely. Wow. Exactly. No. Yeah. So, um, so then you look at the program and you realize that 99% of the time is spent on talking about how to have sex. 1%, if even that, maybe 0.5% is is that one statement and that's it. And I'm guessing that this is what Planned Parenthood uses all over the world because I know International Planned Parenthood also teaches comprehensive sex ed. Um right. Yeah, cuz we have HLI has we do chastity education, obviously abstinence based <laughs> chastity education all over the world and we had this great story come out of Malawi um back in September where Planned Parenthood showed up at the school that we've been doing chastity education at and the students immediately knew that something was wrong. And I'm wondering now if it was the icebreaker and they actually chased them out of the school and burned the condoms they left behind. 
Wow, that is awesome. Yeah, it was it was a pretty great story. And I'm I'm really wondering now if it was the icebreaker, if the kids were just like, this is horrible. Like if they were using the same kind of technique. I'm I'm really wondering if that's what kind of clued the kids into the fact that these like because ours obviously is Catholic Christian talking about saving sex for marriage, the beauty of sexuality, how it's a gift between a husband and wife. Mm. And so I'm really wondering if the kids recognize that there was very crass, a crass approach to sex going on and talking about pleasure. Um, I know that I did some research on IPPF yeah. and they were doing a program called Treasure Your Pleasure in Africa. And I'm wondering if that kind of crass pleasure-based language is what really turned the kids off. But yeah, that was. Yeah, it is very crass, very much. Um, it's always crass mm -hmm. and it's always, um, you know, in some kind of language that makes it seem like it's cool. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> but when you have children who have learned the truth for, you know, and have that worldview, they can, they can discern the difference. And that's why that's so important for parents as well as, um, you know, like schools, like what you're talking about, continue to share God's truth with those children so they can combat uh, opposing worldviews. So that's good. That's good to hear. And, I'm not surprised though. I hope that that school, I think, did you say it's a Catholic school? It's a public school, but um, we have Catholic. Oh, it's public school. Yeah. So oh, I see. In Africa, okay. they basically okay. allow both sides to come in. So Planned Parenthood can come to the school, but Catholic missionaries or Christian missionaries also can come. So they get both sides. And so as soon as we started visiting that school, teen pregnancy stopped completely. And then obviously the kids took it to heart because they didn't want to listen to Planned Parenthood either. So, Yeah. Wow. That is awesome. Right. So in Africa and other countries, um, they receive funding from the UN, a lot of money, millions, I'm sure even into the billions, I don't know. But the condition is that they have to bring in abortion and comprehensive sex education. Yeah. Um, and so many of those countries accept the money and accept that condition. I think Uganda is one that said that they will not accept that condition. Uh, and they've run them out and not accepted the money, I believe. Yeah. There's a um, treaty. Because they they're trying to pass a treaty right now called the EU-ACP Treaty, which is going to force mm -hmm. 79 countries in Africa, Caribbean, and Pacific states, um, if it gets passed, to have mandatory comprehensive sex ed, abortion, and uh, contraception. And so wow. that's right now it's going on, trying to fight it. Um, they need 52 or 53 countries of the 79 to sign and they're at like 44 right now. So our missionaries have also been working to try to get them to either countries to either not sign or to convince countries that have signed to revoke their signatures before the deadline. So, Oh, wow. I would love to learn more about how your missionaries are helping yeah. on a cultural level to, uh, to combat that. That's, that's impressive. Yeah, we do. We um, basically do work of like grassroots up. So doing the chastity education in schools, a lot of leadership training of priests, doctors, nurses. And then we also have our missionaries are um, tied in at the political level. So they're able to go to government officials and say, Hey, this is what this bill is going to cause to happen. This is what this reproductive health, this is what it actually means. These are the repercussions these are the dangers and outlying that for a lot of government officials. And then a lot of people in those countries don't want this and they don't realize that reproductive health actually what it opens the doors to. So kind of holding off the international pressure from the EU and the UN and at the same time trying to build that culture that values God's plan for sexuality. Exactly. And that same, that same approach of building those values in the culture mm -hmm. is what needs to happen in the home. Yeah. Uh, and that's what parents, you know, where I said earlier, some parents don't talk about it at all. Mm -hmm. They think it's shameful. 
And we need to get to a place where we recognize that God created us this way. Mm-hmm. He didn't create the deviancy. That's just our sin. Mm-hmm. Um, but there is a reason why our bodies have changed and it's perfectly normal. And so, you know, when, a, you know, when my son expressed like what's happening to my body, we're, you know, we're had a very close relationship. So he was not embarrassed to ask me. He was really scared because he didn't understand why his body was doing the things it was doing. Yeah. And the first thing I told him to just, cause I could tell he was scared was just to tell him, you know, you're becoming a teenager, you're going through puberty. And this is, I said, congratulations, your body's doing exactly what God created it to do at this time of your life. And you're going to have more changes and you're going to have more questions. Mm -hmm. And I just want you to know that God created you this way. These things are happening because God has said it's time for your body to do this and that's okay. And now let's talk about ways, you know, to manage these things and, and, you know, and have those conversations. And so that really calmed him down to realize this is normal. This is okay. Mm-hmm. And there are things I can do. Um, and then of course we had to have those conversations and I was a single mom, so it was me doing that. But, um, you know, so I think that that's another thing is that as parents, we may have been taught about our sexuality or about our bodies in such a way that we're afraid to talk about it. You know, I know I met a a woman much older than myself, but she admitted that when she got married, she was afraid of intimacy because her mom, they came from, you know, it was a, it was a Christian family, mm-hmm. but her mom had this view of sexuality that was very negative and everything that she taught her daughter was avoided and it was, it was horrible. It was bad. Just, you know, like, you know, don't touch the hot stove kind of thing. Um, and so she said that when she got married, it took a long time for her to undo all of that and to recognize that intimacy in her marriage was a beautiful thing. Mm -hmm. Um, and so, you know, we don't want to put, um, a distorted view of sexual, sexual intimacy as God created it into our children because it is something that God has given us that is very beautiful. What advice would you have for parents then who want to be able to tell that, talk to their kids about this? Like how much should kids know? How do they talk about it? Obviously it doesn't seem like learning about it in schools and definitely not from Planned Parenthood's the answer. So what are the alternatives? Right. Well, I believe what God teaches us in Deuteronomy when he talks about that we are to teach our children God's truth Mm -hmm. Um, as we wake up, as we lay down, as we walk by the way, um, essentially we are to teach our, we are our children's primary educators on all things. And that includes how God created them and uh, how God created humanity, period. We can just go back to Genesis. And all of this was me asking the Lord after I left and became a Christian. And, and I was asking God, well, how do we do this? And so he took me to Genesis and reminded me, I created you. You were created in the image, in the image of God, male and female, uh, which back then I, you know, was like, that's interesting that God says male and female. And now we're seeing today why he knew that it was going to be important for us to know that uh, when God talks about, you know, so really when you look at Adam and Eve, what I began to learn was that the first, you know, the family was the first church and the first government. Uh, And we are still the first church and the first government for our children. And so, you know, we are the primary and sole authority over our children. Parents are, Um, and we are the teachers of that child, you know, so we are the church because we're commanded to teach our children about the Lord and his truths. And so 
I don't believe that it should actually be youth pastors or other people, even within the church, teaching your child about something so intimate. That is something that God has asked the parents to teach. Now, I do believe that the church can provide resources and support in many ways, but they are not the sole authority over our children. They are not the primary educators of our children. The parents are. And so, you know, my advice to parents is to, you know, if you don't already have a healthy view of of sexuality, sexual intimacy, if you don't already know God's purpose for all of that, then dive into that first. Um, Start to really align yourself with God's truth about that. So just because we're Christian doesn't mean that we actually have that worldview about sexual intimacy and marriage. Uh, For parents who are single parents thinking, well, how can I talk about these things when, you know, I'm a single parent and and there's so many different ways that someone becomes a single parent. I myself was not married when I had my son. And so I had those same questions like, how do I talk to my son about what's right when I did it all wrong? But the truth is, is that I know what's right now. Um, I, you know, I learned what was right by be- when I became a Christian. And so a good parent teaches their child what is true and what is right, not what they did in their past necessarily. And so it was very obvious that, and I even told my son, it's obvious that I'm a single parent. You don't have your dad with you. Um, and, and it hurts. And the reason it hurts is because that's not how God designed it this is how God designed it. And this is what we should be striving for. And so he understood that. So he understood that maybe I didn't make the right decisions, but now that I knew what was right, I was teaching him what was right. And then he, he gets to choose that for himself. And so that's another thing about parenting is that we teach our children the truth and then they are completely independent of us in many ways, obviously, And so we need to just show our children grace, mercy, and forgiveness when they fall, when they sin, just as God teaches, uh, you know, just as God forgives us and gives us grace and mercy when we repent. And so um, teaching our children the truth in the right way and and setting up boundaries to help them make good decisions is is all part of parenting. Um, It's also a reality that you might find your child... um, you might discover that your child has seen pornography. You have to address it when it happens. Um, you might find out that your child did become sexually active. You have to have a plan together, husband and wife, or as a single parent to decide how am I going to respond if I if that happens? And what new boundaries do I need to set to ensure it doesn't repeat? Um, as a family, you need to discover, you need to discuss what what will we do if our child conceives a child? Um, because we don't want to go to abortion. We, you know, there's so many Christian families have actually gone to abortion because they didn't think about it ahead of time. And, and so these are things that I tell parents, like we teach our children what is right and what is true, but it doesn't guarantee that they're not going to sin. So prepare yourself on how you're going to respond if they do sin. Um, but a lot of it is just being open and, um, not only about God's truth and teaching them, you know, what God has, how God is uh, his purpose for humanity and marriage and family and children, but also it's important for parents to understand what's happening in the culture. We see that Paul in the New Testament understood the culture. He didn't enable the culture. He didn't adopt the ways of the culture, but he knew enough about the secular world to make a connection with people so that he could teach them the gospel. 
and the way to, you know, uh, to the father. And so that is something that parents need to do as well. Um, you need to know the research behind homosexuality, the transgender movement, um, what are STDs? We need to be educated on those topics so that when our children will challenge us on those topics or when the topic arises, whether it's because we watch the news or someone had brought it up at church or whatever happens, that parents are able to show their children that they are the authority and that you do know what is happening in the culture and that you can guide them towards optimal behavior. Mm -hmm. Um, and so that's really important. You know, there's no fear in teaching children about STDs. Mm -hmm. Um, for me, it's, uh, I taught my son the right way to, you know, to, to behave, um, um, that you're, that this is reserved for marriage. Of course, it's just a little quick summary. I taught him the right way, but I also said now in the world, there are people who choose to have sex outside of marriage. And this is what they have to face. Mm -hmm. And so that was my way of being able to teach STDs without giving, without making it sound like I was giving him permission to do mm -hmm. it. Uh, so it's not, hey, when you decide to have sex outside of marriage, this is what you're going to face. No, it was some people choose to have sex outside of marriage. Mm -hmm. And this is, these are the consequences of the that. Physical dangers and that as well as the spiritual ones, that there's actual physical complications. That's right. That's right. There's physical, there's spiritual, and there's emotional consequences to choosing sex outside of marriage, as well as what are the consequences which are good consequences if you choose to, to, you know, to do this only in marriage. Mm -hmm. Um, and so, yeah, it does mean that we get educated. Yeah. It means that we have to educate ourselves so that we can be that authority for our children mm -hmm. because we, I have received reports from families who their children are very condescending towards them because they have learned the language of you're old fashioned. It's cause you're a Christian. Um, and you don't understand the homosexual community. Mm -hmm. But if you actually do the research yourself and pray about it, you will have a response that will, again, reestablish you as the authority of your child. Mm -hmm. uh, and remember that just because a child rebels doesn't mean you're not the authority. Yeah. You're still the authority. Um, and, and that's important for parents to know that there is no privacy with children. There's some common privacy, you know, like they're going to change their clothes. Of course, they're going to close the door. You know, I mean, small things like that. Um, but as the authority of, of a child over a child, you're the protector. You need to know what's happening in that child's life. And I'll give you an example. There is, a, and this is a very extreme example, but, um, a man wrote a letter and posted it on, um, I guess like a blog post many years ago, and he identified as a homosexual male. Now he shared this very horrific story of how he was sexually violated as a young teenage boy. Mm -hmm. Uh, at a public library in a bathroom by a man. And he, for whatever the reasons, shock, whatever it was, um, he did not share that with his father. Uh, I think part of the reason he did not tell his parents about the violation was obviously scared, uh, many things. But what people need to understand that what happens to a child or even a teenager when they're sexually violated um, and I'll, I'll share this with you later, Colleen, uh, uh, um, 
an article written by Judith Reisman about this is this um, an occurrence of when your when your body seemingly violates you, meaning you're being sexually violated by a person. You know it's wrong, but for some reason your body responds to that violation. And that's very confusing because you think, I know I'm being raped, but why is my body responding this way? And so this little boy had that response. His body responded to the violation and it was very confusing to him because he didn't know if he was violated or not. And what it ended up doing is that he pursued more of those violations through the internet and meeting men at the public library. And he didn't like it. Um, he admitted in this blog that he was depressed. He was being violated over and over again. He was talking to grown men on the internet and his greatest wish as you know, when he was a teenager was that he just wished that his father would walk into his room and look at what he was doing on the computer and make him stop. And he admitted that as a young man, he couldn't make it stop, even though he knew it was destroying him. He needed his father to do it for him. And that was his greatest wish that his dad would just come in, discover what was happening, violate, according to the woke culture, violate this teenager's privacy, go through his computer, discover what was happening to his son and make him stop. Our children are crying out for leadership. They're crying out for their parents to protect them. They just don't have the words to say it. Why? Because they're children. Yes, even at 15, even at 16, they need us to intervene because they don't know how to do it themselves. They need us to set boundaries because they can't do it themselves. Now, there's some boundaries that kids can set for themselves very easily, but there are some things that are a burden too heavy for them to know how to manage. And that's why the authority of a parent is so important. And so parents, you're not violating your children's privacy. You're doing exactly what God created you to do, and that is to protect your child and set boundaries for them because they can't do it for themselves sometimes. And it's a burden that they can't handle and they need you to do it for them. Um, and so I have examples like that of children who truly needed the leadership of parents. Um, is a child going to get upset that you did that? Yes. Even if they knew it was good for them, they're going to be upset. They're going to roll their eyes. They might yell. Um, but we know that if we're doing the right thing, protecting them from unhealthy behavior, then we know we're doing the right thing. You, you can be confident about that. Many times my son, and I know a lot of parents have shared this, that after disciplining a child, they're of course upset, but then all of a sudden that child bonds with you afterwards because it's a relief. It's a relief because you've taken a burden from them that they couldn't handle. They couldn't manage a situation. And so they needed the parent to step in. Um, telling your teenager, if you're at somewhere and you know you're not safe, you know you don't like it, you know you're at a party and you're not comfortable with the drinking or the drugs, you know that you're not, but you don't, you don't want to look you don't want your friends to get you know, upset with you. Give us a call and, and just give us a code word and we'll come and get you. You know, and you can blame us that, oh, my parents found out and they came and they got me, you know, and, and you can save face with your, with your friends, whatever to keep that child safe. 
And so that's what's really important is, is my work with teenagers. Even back then, when I was a comprehensive sex educator, I discovered that kids were truly looking for the truth. They really do want to be protected. They really want to be shown that there's another way. Um, when I proposed to a group of 13-year-olds that they didn't have to have sex, they were astounded. They couldn't believe it. And a little girl actually said, ma'am, no one's ever told us that. And this was a very high risk neighborhood. Um, these kids were, were living in government housing. I every week was dropping off bags of condoms to women who lived there who were known prostitutes. These children were seeing high risk activity all the time. But when I let them know that they could say no to sex, their response was no one's ever told us that. And they started talking about abstaining from sex. Um, what? And it wasn't, go ahead. I was going to say, what caused you to leave that then? The, like, working at Planned Parenthood and teaching kids? Yeah, that's a really good question. So when, um, really God used my becoming pregnant, his pathway to okay. him. And so what I, you know, I was not only teaching this philosophy, this worldview on sexuality, I, I began to live it. I began to adopt it. And I found myself with an unplanned pregnancy. Um, this kind of comprehensive sex education puts you on a cycle of behavior that basically it's, these are the steps. You don't have to think about it. There is no thought. There is no critical thinking. It's have sex, use a condom lubrication, get tested, get an abortion and start all over again. I mean, it's just, it's, it's a non-thinking kind of thing. It's just on automatic. And so I automatically set an abortion to abort my, my child. Um, but I did have a good friend of mine who humanized my child and I decided to, I chose life and, and now I have a 24 year old son. Um, and so he, you, God used that, um, to really make me vulnerable and really put me in a place where I realized I needed the Lord because I wanted to be a good mom and I came to Christ. Now I did not right away recognize that the kind of work I was doing was against the Lord. And I really think that hindsight that God used my career to expose so much of that to me so that I would be able to then have an opportunity to share it with others and, and warn parents about what I knew. And so it was still many years before I left, but the last straw, as I had mentioned earlier, they have a worldview that children are sexual from birth and that they consent to sex, even with adults. And so the last straw was when I was training um, several clinics, uh, several Planned, Par Planned Parenthood clinics in South Texas. And um, I was a Title X training manager. So I was going to train all of these uh, clinics from South Texas on the key concepts of Title X. And one of those was human trafficking. And um, I had already on, on my own time had learned more about human trafficking, had been to some human trafficking conferences. and. Um, and so I was armed with that information and I thought, this is great. I'm going to finally be able to teach Planned Parenthood that these cases of statutory rape that they're seeing in the clinics are actual crimes and that they'll start to report them because I knew they were not reporting when young girls were having sexual relations with adult men. And uh, so I started to explain to them that now the laws had changed and that statutory rape fell under human trafficking and that it was a federal offense and that they needed to report it. 
and I, they, they rejected the, uh, the information and I could tell through body language and such that they were just like, nah, you know, and, and I thought, well, maybe the reason that they're rejecting the information is because they're so used, um, you know, there's, there's this, um, phenomena that many of these victims will protect their traffickers because of the brainwashing. And so I thought maybe that's why they're confused. Maybe this is why they think that these girls are consenting because they're actually protecting their trafficker, their violator. And so I explained that and, and said, but you know, the point is that this is a minor child. Uh, even if it's, if even if the girl's 16 and she's a minor, you know, be, you, you've got to protect her. This is now a federal offense and you need to report it and protect her. They continued to disagree with me. And I said, you know, I give up. I don't understand. Why are you refusing to see these girls as victims? Why are you refusing to report it? And one of the nurses <clears throat> raised her hand and she said, honey, if she's not with this man this month, she'll be with another one next month. And they all agreed, you know, about 300 people all agreed, 300 women, clinicians, educators, all agreed that these young girls were consenting to sex with adult men. And they gave a lot of crass, horrible reasons as to why a girl would want to be with an older man. It was very disgusting. And I finally said, you know what? You can believe that all you want. But here's the truth. It's the law and you have to report it. Their next response was, don't ask, don't tell. If I don't ask the age of her sexual partner, then I don't have to tell. And so they refused to protect these young girls. So you need to understand and your listeners need to understand that Planned Parenthood and there are many clinicians the medical community believes this as well, that they have a right to these sexual behaviors, that they're consenting. Mm -hmm. And they have a very distorted view of our children. They have a distorted view of sexuality. And they're not there to protect our kids. Mm -hmm. You know, I took this concept, this belief system to a victim of human trafficking who is now a woman who advocates for victims of human trafficking. She helps counsel them. She's a leader in the, in the community. And I asked her about this and, uh, and she said, you know, the truth is, is that traffickers are masters of getting consent from women and children. And I said, what do you mean? And they said, she said, they can convince a child and a woman to consent to sex. A child can be groomed by a trafficker so well that they can go to school, leave school, go to wherever she's told to go to have sexual activity with an adult, go home on her own and go back to school the next morning. And she does that all voluntarily because she's being groomed and she's afraid. And now it looks like she's consenting. Yeah. And, um, and I read a book called Pimpology written by a pimp, and it's not a book I recommend for anyone to read, but he literally, this man wrote this book about how to get consent out of women to do his bidding as a professional pimp is what he considered himself. And so this belief of consent is a very gray area because people, humans, women, and children can be manipulated into giving their consent to things that are actually illegal and harmful. 
And so the protection of a parent is very important. Um, it is a war, Colleen, and you know that. And you see it across the globe in your work. And people are thinking it's such a big problem. It's bigger than what we can handle. But let's go back to Genesis and let's go back to how God created the first church and the first government. And number one is your own family. And that's where you start. Yeah. That is where you start and get educated. And then not only be a leader in your home, and this is what I, I preach through my business called It Takes a Family, become a leader in your home with your children, with your marriage, become a leader in your community. And now your children are watching you lead in the community. That could be your church, your school, just your community yeah. and be a leader in politics because Alfred Kinsey and Planned Parenthood and many, many of these people are changing our government and our policies and our laws to give them the right to violate your children. Yeah. And if the Christians are absent from that leadership and from being decision makers in our country, we will continue to see what we're seeing today. And if we were to read the Bible, it's a big book of politics too. <laughs> There's many Kings. There are many, you know, it, it, we, we see uh, David, we see Joseph. I mean, we see all, everyone working within the government, doing God's will, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I mean, they were all doing God's will within corrupt governments. And we're able to shine the light of God. Yeah. And so it's important for us to engage in our homes, in our communities, and yes, even through politics and through policies yeah. as Christians to do what is right in the eyes of God. Well, thank you so much for being on today. This has been a fascinating conversation. It's really good to hear what the mindset is of like what children are learning in schools if they're having comprehensive sex ed to be able to understand, okay, what what's going on? What, what is attacking our children in society and how can we then help strengthen families? And going back to what you were saying earlier about how it's like, obviously the domestic church, the role of the family as the primary parents as the primary educators. I think it's really important that the church is there to support parents who are educating their children, that when the parents are doing the right. research, they have those resources available to them. They know they can go to people for questions to know, okay, how can I better teach my children? And I think that your organization and mine, we're doing a lot of that, helping parents, empowering parents to be able to help their children grow up in a crazy world. Absolutely. Yeah. We need the whole body of Christ doing yeah. that. So thank you for your work. Thank Colleen. you for your work. And to all of our listeners, please like, subscribe, check out the new eBooks that we have on the end screen and keep on living the culture of life. God bless. Mm -hmm.